my biggest strength is how relatable and likable I can be. But I've used it in so many horrible, disgusting ways. I've used my gift to control people. I use my gift to get away with whatever the fuck I wanted. I use my gift to manipulate situations to make me look like the good guy. You're a scumbag. You're a liar. You're an alcoholic, addict, and a psychopath. I actually convinced myself that I was one of the good guys. I know it's in me somewhere, but it's buried. Nobody wanted anything to do with me because I was a piece of shit. I had a phenomenal upbringing. I was taught to live my life with morals, integrity, the whole nine yards. And unfortunately, you cannot teach the switch to flip off. When that switch turns on, it doesn't matter what you tell me, it doesn't matter what I learned when I was five years old, I will get high every single time because it is me, me, me. This is just a public service announcement to maybe some parents that are listening to this podcast. If you feel any guilt whatsoever, cut the shit right now. You are not the culprit. There's nothing in the world that you could have taught them better, told them better, showed them better, that was going to stop your child from getting high. I don't want to say I didn't, I wasn't thinking what I was doing was wrong. I thought I was just doing what I had to do to survive at the time. Please don't be mad at me. The days of hiding from my problems stop now. The days of giving up on myself stop now. The days of me destroying relationships just so I could feel something stop now. Even if we're monsters in our act of addiction and we can't fathom the shit we've done, we are all worth it. We are all worth it to see those sober days. Welcome to a new episode of An Addictive Perspective. If you like what you hear, please go in and subscribe so you know when the new episodes are coming out. Enjoy the episode. What are your credentials, Mike, to be exact? So that is a really good question. <laughs> Do you just want to answer that in the episode? So it's- No, okay. I'm happy to tell you. So actually, I was a, a, a high school teacher and a college coach. Okay. Um, but I, came, I became interested in the count based on how much I was fascinated by brain studies. The, the um, Hamilton County Drug Abuse Prevention Council Director. Okay. So that was in the old days. DAPCs were how the state of New York to uh, create recovery communities and prevention communities. So you one hand, you work to try to prevent drugs. The other hand, you try to get people into treatment. I think so, that's like what we do. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but I didn't really know much about it. So you go to a lot of training. And the training we had was from a place that New York State uh, supported called Narcotic and Drug Re- and I had a number of college graduate level courses in addictions, and they were terrible. They were all the really old, um, bad people use bad drugs for bad reasons. And, you know, the best thing you can do is like pray for them or whatever. Um, but none <laughs> of it was based on brain research. Narcotic and drug research, that place was like, we're looking at studies on what 
happens inside people's brains. So I would go to, you know, every training they presented in the state and ask a million questions. And so after a while, they'd be like, you need to come work with us. And so we can don't have to answer your questions anymore <laughs> during our trainings. I became one of their presenters uh, and we worked across all of New York State doing a number of programs, anything that ranged from family systems therapy to uh, uh, adolescent depression and suicide to, you know, the three-day, five-day overview of the impact of drugs on the human brain. So it was, for me, it was like fascinating. I was a teacher, you know, by already by trade and I loved it. Um, and then I, you know, after a few years, I became the director of the Training Institute for Narcotic and Drug Research. And uh, as, as um, I wrote a ton of federal grants, actually I had smarter people than me write the <laughs> grants for me. And so we were doing training nationwide. We were, we were the first people to do I don't know if you've heard of, you know, adolescent drug courts or adult drug courts, you know, yep. all across the country. Our company, our, our NDRI not-for-profit, you know, we pioneered that. I did training in, in 43 states to get that on board. A ton of it in the prison systems, uh, a lot of it in the judicial systems. And um, it actually, the adult drug courts and the adolescent drug courts were the first thing I believed in wholeheartedly in terms of, you know, we, we learned that punishing people, you cannot override an addiction with a punishment, you know, yeah, it doesn't work. Um, there's plenty of people who still like that idea, but it doesn't work. So, so this was, you know, a chance for people, you know, you can do your five-year bid, you know, in, in Sing Sing or, you can go to drug court, which is not going to be easy, you know, because, you know, while, while you are not, you know, um, incarcerated, um, you know, you're going to show up every day, you're going to be, you're going to have a bracelet or an anklet, you're going to get drug tested, you know, once or twice a week, you know, you can't skip sessions. So it's always a really wonderful, like no bullshit approach, but not about punishing people, about getting people into a treatment program, you know, and it takes, even no matter how we talk about treatment, it takes people anywhere from one to three months to actually start to believe that this could help them. You know, when you have people in a drug court, they're like, oh yeah, I'm fully on board, but they're not, you know, <laughs> it's just what you say, you know, to keep out of, you know, uh, trouble. But boy, I would see the changes. And, and I would tell you, I would fly to, to uh, you know, Michigan. I'd be a court judge in Minneapolis, and I'd be doing a conference, and, and um, we'd go out to dinner, and some young person on the wait staff, both male and female, would come over and say, Judge Larson. And the judge would say, oh, Timothy, how are you? He said, I've been clean 18 you know, I'm going to school part-time. If it wasn't for that program, I'd be dead by now. I, I heard that over and over, um, you know, so I was really impressed with it. So I, I loved doing that, um, left narcotic and drug research, fortunately, like several months before 9-11, um, our building was in the Two World Trade Center. 
know, so, so, you know, to be at that time. And I went on my own as a consultant. So now I do consulting. I, I work for probably a year. I do speaking conferences all over the country. A lot of them are like the Georgia School of Addiction Studies or the Minnesota School of Addiction Studies. Um, I get to go to places like uh, Nebraska in December, you know, uh, South Dakota in January, you know, <laughs> uh, just these, you know, highlights of, of uh, travel. You know, it's funny, you can get cheap rates in the off season. So, yeah, yeah. Come to Houston well, in August. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy that heat. Mm. So, so uh, you actually have um, a drug and alcohol, well, a drug court graduate uh, on this podcast here, uh, and that's Taylor. So, Taylor, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself real quick. Oh, or maybe great, Taylor. Yes. So, I'm Taylor. Um, I actually, I'm coming up on six years clean. I graduated from Lycoming County Drug Court, which is in Pennsylvania. Wonderful. In, in 2018. Uh, yeah. um, it was a two-year program. I graduated sanction-free. <coughs> um, and I, I'm with you. I think if it wasn't for that program, I would probably be in a casket right now. Yeah. Um, I'm now a certified recovery specialist in Pennsylvania. Excellent. Um, yeah. I work for kind of like what you're talking about. I work for a single county authority. Um, we act in prevention, getting people into recovery services, rather that's outpatient, inpatient. Um, we also do referrals for medication assisted treatment. Yes. Um, so we cover two counties like coming in Clinton County. Um, and I've been at the commission. I've worked there for a little over two years now. And, um, I'm also, uh, they consider me the lead or the coordinator for the warm handoff program that we had rolled out with uh, UPMC in the Northeast, which we cover three hospitals as well. That, that is wonderful. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, it, it kind of the, the drug court stuff and you see, you know, after a while you start to see the judges who were like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to do that. You know, they start bidding for drug court, you know. <laughs> yeah. They, they they start they start like believing in it, and so you know I've I've had this this chance to to see these changes in in a judicial system that I mean, a long time ago when I first started doing stuff in the criminal, system, the people in me would say, well, it's not, and it's not systemic. But it is criminal, you know. So, so to see the shift that you get, yeah. even in the prisons. So we started doing treatment programs in the prisons, which was another like unbelievably interesting. You know, you have to convert the COs. If you don't convert the COs, it's. But as an offshoot of what we were doing in in drug courts, we started them in the prison systems, and and um, you know. You know, when you can see someone who's, uh, you know, has a, a brain disease, a disease of the brain that, that them a changed human being, that does not deprive them of their essential value and dignity, you know. And because so many of them, in order to keep their, 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 their drug going, commit crimes, 
criminals. Those are people who are addicted, who are doing something to get the money, to keep the drugs that's going to make them seem functional. Um, so we, we, we really worked hard to shift the COs. And in most states, we were, we were pretty successful. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah and um, well, I'm, I'm Josh, if you didn't put that together. Um, but I've been the guy who's been sending you emails back and forth. Um, and my, my background on this is kind of just trying to keep Matt and Taylor um, organized as much as possible while doing these episodes. It's, it's, a, it's a tough task. Um, but my background is I'm, I have a master's degree in social work. Um, and uh, I grew up with an alcoholic father. Um, so I have that uh, perspective. Um, I don't work in the drug and alcohol field now or anything like that. I did do uh, five years of child welfare work. Um, but that was pretty much, you know, I worked with a lot of individuals with um, a lot of families that have drug and alcohol history. Oh, you, and, absolutely. Yeah. You'll yeah. see that over and over in that, in that system. It's, it's weird, Josh. I'm doing, I'm doing 10 sessions with New York State. They're all Zoom too with New York State Department of Social Services, Office of Family and Children, um, with family uh, welfare workers and CPS. And this, this time through, we did the drug ones last year. This time through, we're doing depression and suicide. Okay. You know? and, and so trying to get people on board with like, here's what's happening and what's happening in somebody's brain changes their behavior and so what you see is not a mom who doesn't want to take care of her kid you see a mom who is incapable of taking care it's not that she won't it's that she can't you know and so how do we get you you know to help her find a way into a treatment system that's going to work for her as opposed to like we're just going to go and take those kids you know right, and, right. and um and so uh, i've really seen some pretty interesting changes, even, even in, you know, when, when I'm working with county parole, where it used to be, you know, trail them, nail them, and jail them. Yeah. Now, now it's way more MSWs and way more, how can we intervene? How can we help? How can we get this person back on track before the next felony wrap, you know? Right. Um, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about, you know, how, systems and county systems are even when they fight it becoming more humanistic <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. It, it sounds like they're taking a real i would say a social work um approach to it um i'll let matt introduce go ahead matt you can introduce yourself oh hey mr nerdy my name's matt um a <laughs> little background on me i'm six months sober uh alcohol cocaine marijuana the whole deal also have a pretty extensive history struggling with depression and was definitely suicidal towards the end of my addiction. But uh, I actually, when I was living in San Diego, gave Taylor a call and was like, dude, I need help. Yeah. So um, got, got ended up flying back here. My parents were gracious enough to take me back in and uh, flew back here. Taylor hooked me up with uh, meetings and everything. I've been, been doing that thing ever since and uh let, let, crazy life's gotten a, a lot better it's very slowly but uh <laughs> things things have started to turn around and uh, that, that is excellent how old are you matt i'm 28 28 yeah so you are you know you are uh, uh, the earlier so what does our research tell us you know the earlier that we can get somebody direct 
this is going to be a fast ride downhill, you know, uh, and get them into treatment programs. Not only do we have far better brain recovery, but a far greater chance of, you know, a stabilized remission and recovery, even if there's a relapse. You know, the relapses are shorter. People get back into treatment. They, 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 you know, in five, your brain is already, by, in six months, your brain has already done some remarkable, remarkable changes. And in, and in five years, you know, your brain will be indistinguishable from somebody who's never done drugs. So because you're young, because you're, you know, you still have a ton of plasticity and because you cared enough. And so, and you and Taylor and your, your parents to get you into, you know, a recognition of your struggles and, and help with that. You have some, you know, pretty good. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so does everybody else. <laughs> so, Mr. Nerney, we, uh, uh, so that's the guys from uh, what we call our show, An Addictive Perspective. I think I'm going to keep a lot of that information in there because you gave us already a lot of good information, if that's okay with you. It's fine um, with me, yeah. And we're, we're, we're completely fine with cursing. Uh, we, we curse the whole episode. If you're not okay with that, we'll keep it to a minimum. Um, I, but we try I try to keep, keep it... that shit out of my recordings all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So um, the, the reason I reached out um, specifically to you is um, back in 2014, um, you did a um, – I want to – you spoke at Hershey in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yes, I um, did. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was actually there. Uh, so I, I actually have notes still uh, in a notepad up in Get my out. office. Yeah, from, from when you spoke. Um, and I actually met you in person. I don't expect you to remember that. I did meet you in person after you spoke. Um, you were at the bar, and I think you got a martini. And, uh, <laughs> it would have been a dark beer. It would have been a Guinness. Would, would have been a beer? Okay. Yeah. So I, um, I, I actually went up and just started talking to you, my coworker and I. Um, and you just were very down to earth, very, um, I was super interested in, you know, what you're talking about, risk and reward par- portion of the brain in adolescence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was actually working for children and youth at the time. So that's where the idea came from. I'm like, what is he doing these days? So I was like, oh, I started doing research and looked up your name and all that information. Oh, I actually, that's great. yeah, yeah. I actually called your phone and left a voicemail and I reached out to you via email yeah. um, and you got back to me right away. So that was pretty awesome. I was super excited when you uh, reached back out. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You know, I remember you two guys because you smelled like chocolate. <laughs> 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 that is <hilarious>. but it was <laughs> doesn't, wait doesn't everybody yeah everyone everyone there does um so uh so here we are long story short we got you on this uh podcast here um and i did see that you're doing a little bit of work um on a we actually pulled up some slides and it was the adolescence adolescence and drug and alcohol misuse basically program that you're de- that you have developed as well like um the adolescent yeah. brain development yes risky business drugs and alcohol correct oh, yeah yeah yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Like one. yeah yeah so um what we like to do mr nerdy and i sorry to pull the reins in here but at the beginning of the episode, we just like to all go through, you know, something that we're grateful for um, to, to start off on a high note. Um, and then we'll just go in and we'll kind of just 
let it free form organically. We don't really have a, a set thing that we need to discuss, but um, we'll ask you a few questions and see where that goes and where it takes us as long as you're okay with that. You bet. All right. Awesome. Uh, I'll start out because mine's super simple. Um, my daughter, my new daughter was born on July 8th. That's why we haven't been recording many episodes. Yes. yes. I was uh, going to ask you about the update. Yeah. Yeah. So um, she was born. Um, she's 16 days old now, I guess it would be. Um, she's doing really great. Mom's doing really great. Um, and our other daughter, Blake, she's actually being a pretty good big sister. She was rough at first, but she's learning. Um, <laughs> but she'll be, she'll be two in September. So it's, it's a little bit of a learning curve. Um, so I know that that brain hasn't doubled in size yet. That takes another year. Coming right, up, Coming up. <laughs> Coming up. <laughs> so she's learning quick. She's a uh, super, she's a uh, smart already. So, um, but mom and baby are doing great. So that's what I'm grateful for today. Um, Taylor, you're up. What I'm grateful for, man, we hit the links today. Any day that you can golf with good friends is a good day in my book. I'll keep it super short and simple. Golfing, golfing is great. I can't disagree. All right, Matt. Um, I'm going to go, I'm grateful for the people I've met in recovery. Um, not just Taylor, but it's definitely taken more than him. And about 4th of July, I hit a, I hit a little bit of a, not a, like want to relapse thing, but I was, I've been off since then and I kind of got through it and I got through it based off what the people in recovery, um, have taught me and talking to them and having them share their experiences with me and everything. And now I'm kind of on the other side of it, feeling pretty good and, uh, you know, before before when I was out there on my own, uh, I probably would have done something that wouldn't have been good for anybody. I mean, right. history, you know, history shows <laughs> that whenever I you know, wake up feeling anxious and my you know wheels in my head start spinning, I don't yeah. do good things. But we did, we went through without doing anything catastrophic. So here we go. That, here we that's go. <laughs> that's great, Matt. And isn't it interesting how many of our celebrations had to have alcohol? and drugs and mm-hmm. you know that that we we learned like well this is the way you have to celebrate and so yeah. when they when they come around and your brain is like yeah and you know and you have to talk <laughs> it down you know so yeah i'm a walking fourth of july too <laughs> super patriotic i love barbecues I, I don't know my brain woke up and it, i woke up that day and it was like guess what you're supposed to do and i was like now yeah <laughs> yeah well i that i'm grateful that i live in the central adirondacks and I was out with some good friends and my granddaughter in our kayaks on Lake Eaton in this beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just grateful for the life I have and for the opportunity to interact with people who struggled, overcome, uh, given back, you know, and I get to interact with those people like on a regular basis and it, it makes me appreciate life of, of, in, at every phase. I love that too. That's all. Hey, we're grateful for a lot of awesome things this week, I think. Um, and our guest had a good one too. So, yeah, I mean, like, so high school teacher turned drug and alcohol counselor slash public speaker um, and soldier for this, uh, this cause here, it sounds like. And um, one thing that I wanted to kind of discuss, which sport did you uh, coach, Mr. Nerney? So I coach, I, for, um, I discovered wrestling. 
because I was at five, eight, I was not going to make the team where the average was six, three on our college team. Um, So I played (laughs) soccer in the fall and one of my soccer teammates said, you know, you're mean. No. (laughs) Um, And, and, and so I, I loved wrestling and, and I, I did really well at it, even though I got a late start. So I coached that at the, the college and the high school level. Okay. I wrestled for 11 years, so I can relate with that one. Now, um, were you from PA? Were you wrestling in Pennsylvania? Yes. Yep. Central Pennsylvania. Yep. Very good state for wrestling. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's some out-of-staters that come up and say they were state finalists and they don't even make the, the starting squad on these teams yep. up here. They learn real quick. Um, so... I guess is there what's the what's the the major why as to um what got you into this basically like this this kind of thing you said you it just struck you was there something personally that maybe happened that you're okay with sharing or is there yeah just something that called (laughs) as a matter of fact sometimes I'm with like a group of eighth graders I I only do it when like my life is being too good and I'm too happy. (laughs) I'm like, you know, let me go talk with eighth graders. But, but um, occasionally they will ask me, I mean, actually there's so much fun. And by the time you're working with 12th graders, they are asking me questions like, like, okay, what I get depressed or what happens to kids who have an attention deficit deficit. So, so they're fascinated by brains. Eighth graders also, but they're also, they're, they're interested in you as a person. And one point, one of the kids said, well, what made you get into this? And I will not make this the long story, but I'll tell you what made me get into it. Is that I was teaching high school and coaching wrestling in Massachusetts. And one of my promising uh, who had taken third in the States as a sophomore, pretty good, he, uh, on a long practice, you know, um, he, uh, we practiced for another tournament for like the summertime. He left practice late. Some kids were going by who weren't in sports. He hitched a ride with them. The driver was drunk and stoned and ran the car around a curb into a slid in and hit the car at the back seat door, the back door which killed my wrestler instantly and uh, my, the kid that was on my team and the kid in the front was thrown sideways out the window and had brain damage and to this day has never recovered from that fully. And the driver who was a junior and had uh, a fracture, a broken collarbone and a dislocated ankle, all of which, you know, casts, crutches and therapy, he was fine. So he lost his license for six months and I was, you know, I was happy I didn't have his home address uh, because it, I felt like, I felt like he had my wrestler. Mm-hmm. He came out for the team, for the wrestling team as a senior athlete. He came out as a, as a senior. And I was like, well, this kid's name was Kevin. And I was like, well, apparently he didn't feel like, cause his mom and dad were completely you know, uh, um, uninterested in disciplining him, you know. Oil kitty came out. I'm thinking, well, this kid doesn't feel like he got punished enough, but I am going to help with that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was awful. I've never treated someone like this, but I would be like, okay, uh, everybody do 30 laps around the gym. Kevin, you're, dr- you're dog going to do 40. 
It didn't matter what I did to him. More push-ups. He did them all. He never complained. He never whined. He never went home and told mommy and daddy how mean I was. Um, and I mean, I stuff like, well, there are some holes that are illegal that you can't do. Kevin, come over here. Okay. <laughs> you cannot knee somebody in the face like this, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, so, you know, two months go by and I'm putting them in to wrestle against my, my our contenders for state titles and they're killing them. Um, no complaints, nothing. I actually have them wrestle uh, at a match, which we had a scrimmage where everybody wrestles and he did okay. And I started to like the kid. I started to like the kid. Um, he, you know, worked hard, never complained, took the mistreatment that I delivered to him completely unfair of me and uh and just you know and so the the year goes by it's getting right towards the end of february and season's wrapping up and he's hanging around at the end of practice one day which happened the accident was so i said so uh you want to talk a little bit is is that why hanging around he says yeah so he comes in and we have this long talk where eventually he says so it's my fault that Mark is dead and that Danny has, I own that. It's my fault. He said, I, I do wonder why though. Why is it that a number of my teachers and the guidance counselor, I was coming to school drunk and high. You know, you could smell the liquor on me. My mother and father would say, you know, you shouldn't do that, but there was never any consequence. And I, I just wonder if someone had stepped up and said, you're done with this, buddy, because get evaluated, go to treatment, get grounded, whatever we need to do to help you realize you're going down the wrong track. He said, I wonder if this would have been different. Um, mm. And I'll tell you, I wondered about it, too. So at some point, I had a chance to become you know, the director of a rural county, which, you know, Rural counties don't get much help, you know. Would mm -hmm. you would you be the the director of our of our programs? I had like six schools, and I said, yeah, yeah, because I'm going to be the one who says, "Come into my office, my friend," you know, because we're going to talk about this uh, and see if we can't find a way you help yourself out of the mess that you're getting into. So that's really. What was not the only, but it was a major motivation for me. Okay. All right. I wonder if they gave him, uh, what was that, that blood pressure medication after that accident, right? For the oh, post-traumatic stress disorder? No, that was so long ago. So I know, but I, I see I was paying attention when you, you spoke. Were, <laughs> you're killing me, man. <laughs> yes. So, and they didn't even know that it could suppress you know, store traumatic memories. You get an A, Josh. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. So, um, Taylor, I know that, um, well, both Matt and Taylor, one thing that they discussed before, and they can kind of talk to it a little, a little bit more because they went through it themselves. You know, uh, a lot of people might say, a lot of listeners that we have might say, uh, you know, if a kid – if a kid has a really bad upbringing, right, if they're if they're in a bad household where there's, um, you know, stressors in the home, like physical abuse, sexual abuse, anything like that, obviously, that's a stressor that's going to um, turn them to abusing drugs and alcohol. Um, sometimes, sometimes it won't. Um, but Taylor and Matt, you know, they had pretty 
pretty good upbringing. So, I mean, am I speaking out of turn there, Taylor and Matt? Not at all. Great great upbringing. Yeah. So one thing that we've discussed on the podcast, which we're not, we don't have the, as much, you know, education on it as you might. Um, and some listeners obviously might not either, but, um, you know, why is it that if you don't have the answer to this, it's okay. Why is it that if you grow up in a household, that's a great upbringing, good, you know, non-stressors that people still turn to drug and alcohol, um, and, and end up misusing that stuff. So, well, and that is a great, and the truth is, part of the opportunity, you know, so like if, if, even if your parents were great parents and paying attention, you know, I grew up in, I have four of my own kids and I grew up in a family of eight, seven boys in a <laughs> row. My mom had seven boys in a row. Uh, and then finally, uh, um, but as, as, and as good as my parents were, you cannot watch your kids all the time. So who are you hanging out with? We were getting in cars at 15, but he had two six packs, you know, but then you had to be like really careful sneaking into the house, you know? So, so if your parents had some vigilance, you know, you were relatively careful with the drugs and alcohol, unless you were, you know, good at hiding it. But so with, with teenage males, for the most part, what we find is older friends or older brothers and the opportunity to try drugs or alcohol. So currently more males use drugs than females, but it isn't anything really intrinsic, although there's a higher boys to take physical risk, which include drugs and alcohol than females, but but you can get within three percentage points when, when everybody has the opportunity Boys are only like three percentage points above girls, but most social situations, most high schools, most you know, uh, urban communities, suburban communities, uh, greater opportunities earlier. So you'll see like fifty-three percent of the boys using alcohol and drugs, and forty-one percent of the girls. Um, so, for most, for the most part, the other part is this. You know, we all have different sets of brain chemistry and, and we all, you know, respond to drugs differently. But if you have a lot of receptor sites in the that respond to dopamine, you know, if you love life, you know, sometimes your, your brain loves life. But one of the pathways that runs in and discharges dopamine comes from the use of drugs. So in some cases, you would have, you know, a drink or get high. You'd be like, I freaking love this feeling. You know, any bullshit that I'm struggling with floats away. Everything is so funny. Turn it back on the the lawn and look up at the cosmos and say, whoa, so like I feel so insignificant, you know, know? Uh, know, but it's like it, it, it makes me feel like somehow I feel good. I feel connected. Things are funny. Life is good. And this is never going to get me in trouble because I'm just going to use it when I feel like it and I'm not going to misuse it. So what do we know? Some people, more, more reward out of the drug and then greater opportunity. And that changes how your brain works. So at one point, you start to get less reward based on both and you need more drugs to get the same feeling. 
but it's so hard to recognize that, you know, and if you're a guy, half the time, it's like you brag on it. Like, yeah, man, I can have 10 beers. I hardly had a buzz <laughs> on. Yeah. That's tolerance. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. You're in a dangerous zone. <laughs> tolerance. But because to get the buzz, you need to drink the 10 beers. So it starts to shift your way of, of being inside your own brain. And for you guys both mentioned, we know by the he has, particularly males, wandering for females. So there's an, an enzyme, a protein actually, in our brain, MR2D. And that protein helps us with impulse control. When you're drinking, in, in two drinks, that protein has gone to bed. So any bad idea that let's run these lines of cocaine, let's crush up the I got from my brother, you know, because he's, uh, he had his ACL operated on, let's do something higher risk with drugs. And I had an impulse that before that would be like, no, I'm never doing that. Your capacity to regulate that impulse, that's gone. So, you know, your head's down on the table with a straw and you're sniffing stuff. And so, so much of it happens with this incremental addition, second drug. Then you're hung over in the morning and like, oh man, I could do something to feel better. So it, it, it even with a good set of parent functional, normal brain, those kind of conditions start to drag you further and further down the drain. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Do you guys have any questions about that or any statements? No, the, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And it kind of pieces the puzzle together for me because I really relate to the opportunity thing because I remember distinctly my first encounter with alcohol. Um, we were, I was with a friend and we were going to take some from his dad that he has in stash and we were going to basically steal it. Um and as far as the risk reward thing goes, I didn't like second guess it. I didn't question it. Um, I wasn't like, oh no, we're going to get caught. It was like, hey, let's take a couple beers from my dad and drink these. And I was like, okay, sure, let's do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that makes that makes tons of sense. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, what I've always, you know, not really struggled with, but I've always had this idea in my mind and I, I think when you alluded to the brain chemistry, that kind of is at least the answer for me because I've always leaned on that is more, more so as um, not really a nature nurture thing, but um, is addiction a, a brain chemistry that we develop even before we set our sight on alcohol and we pick up or drugs for that matter or is it something that progresses, you know, once we get those substances in our body? And me and Matt have talked, um, and I've talked to a lot of people, and um, it almost seemed like I had alcoholic and addict tendencies before I even was in that realm of that world. Yeah, um, yeah, it, that's completely possible. So, and, and you know, without without doing what we sometimes do too much of in treatment. Well, your great, great grandparents must've been alcoholics, buddy. Um, and, and maybe they were. Um, so, so much of, of the history of our, 
you know, was coded by our own parents, you know, so your dad might not talk about your granddad because for 10 years he was like, you know, absent drunk or, or, or who knows, or, or depressive and drinking to treat his depression. You know, so, so, so much of what we don't know, what we do know now that both, you know, change gene codes, mutagenic gene codes, and epigenetic gene codes changes can come down from three or four generations above you. So even if your parents were like, you know, pretty stable, pretty standard, pretty healthy in terms of their consumption of, of drugs and alcohol, who knows who else in their family wasn't. So you could have that's in there. Um, and, and even without those presets, you know, if you have life encounters that are hard, I mean, we know that, that you know, if, if even the boyfriend, girlfriend breakup or whoever partner was that you broke up with, those are often harder emotional struggles for males because we don't have the words as much as the girls do. The girls are texting their girlfriends like, hey, that bastard did this, you know, and, you know, he's already out with Jessica. You know, it's all texting back and forth and we're like, yeah. I don't like her anyway, you know, you know, <laughs> when your heart is broken. So sometimes the inability for what we're going to call emotional differentiation, my emotions, leads to like, well, the way I deal with it is I just, I just crank them under. And, and it doesn't have to be some big deal. It can be you didn't get the grade you wanted on the test. Or look, what brains in the, the first few beers excite these pathways in the young brains and life is a party. I mean, you know, when I used to go to spring break, I used to go out to uh, South Padre Island, you know, off the spring break. There you go. Uh, yeah, I'm talking talk about, you want to watch drugs and alcohol in action. Um, <laughs> but, and, but, and I would actually get to know some of the, the young people there because I would play hoop with them in the afternoon and they'd be like, you're really old. Why are you here? Are, are you like a graduate student? <laughs> I mean, no, no, I'm studying the fact. And they would all say, you know, on the brain, and they would all say, look at my friend's brains. You know, well, I didn't take a look at yours actually. So one thing we see is that when somebody's 12 beers into their Thursday on the beach and they're staggering down the beach singing and saying, what t-shirt contest if if so if that person were 35 they would be unconscious in near death young brains find remarkably energizing so yeah it is a central nervous system depressant but far more when you're over 22 on far more exciting let's have a party let's dance let's go to this club let's go find these girls across the lake at the summer camp let's live man so you know you get this excitement now you pay for it you know you mm -hmm. pay for it two days later when when dope, dopamine and calcium in particular runs out of its channels and starts killing your brain cells so binge drinking can end up over the course of a college year of binge drinking, and that's 10 months, nine months now, up eroding about 12% of the prefrontal cortex right out of your brain. And you don't even have to do it every, every, every week. So here's so interesting with all the COVID stuff. So right now, a new trend, because people were stuck in their dorms, people couldn't go to 
school, people would lock down, go to high school twice a week, can't go out, parties, all of that stuff. The new trend is that when people did get out, not just binge drinking, that's like three to five, seven drinks, you know, on a Friday night. The new trend is high where they're drinking 13 to 15, you know, beers or shots on a Friday night. And it is far more likely to send people to the ER, send people to the morgue and, and dumb people down to the out of their college by, by the end of their freshman year. So, so there's a lot that our brains like about alcohol. Uh, when you're young, when you're young, it is a freaking party. It is a blast. And you're young and physical and strong and you recover from it faster the next day. So you're not like brutally hungover. You know, you have like, well, yeah, like I had two Dunkin' Donuts and some coffee. <laughs> now I feel way better. Um, so you have, a, you have a ton going. What you have going against you is the aftermath of heavy drinking on a weekend is is killing brain cells sound familiar matt oh yeah um, <laughs> yeah during covid i definitely I, well to give you a little mm -hmm. background on me doc um during covid i was working from home which i found out was probably the worst thing that could ever happen to me as well as far as my drinking went because i had the only reason that i ever had to be sober was for me to go somewhere you know, like work. But when I was working from home, I would wake up and I would like shotgun white claws, take some shots, do a line or two, and then start cold calling people and selling stuff. And I found out I was better at it when I was hammered. But, um, <laughs> but uh, what I would talk to you about is um, I, what I, when I first started drinking, like it was like, I was always kind of like a, a weird kid like I was kind of restless and kind of irritable a little discontent or I was on top of the world happy life of the party like leaking positivity like you want to be around this guy all the time and there was really never an in-between with me um when I was drinking I I loved it like I loved it for a long time like it was it was everything I want it was the only thing I wanted to do and I got exactly what I wanted um when I was in the Navy, I mean, every time I got off work instantly, I would just go drink. And for a while, like it was, it, it, that was my life. That was my life for about 10 years. But yeah. when I was, when I was locked in for COVID, um, alcohol stopped working for me. Like I, I physically could not get drunk no matter yes. how much I drank. And even, even when I introduced cocaine to the situation and everything and weed and like, tried to do that balance of a cocktail it was like i the only thing at best i could get normal to where i wasn't super depressed or super anxious right is right. that something that like what goes on there so like, what are your thoughts on all that so there's a ton of great research on what goes on there um at at some point in their inappropriate relationship with drugs or alcohol people are basically taking enough of the drug or drinking enough alcohol just to feel normal because it's not even, you can't even get high anymore. You know, there's, there's right. you're all, so two things happen. So your liver starts making a ton of excess enzymes because alcohol has, you guys know, a, a breakdown product of alcohol 
It's called acid. And acetaldehyde is killing your organs, killing cells, killing your organs. <clears throat> and both your brain and your liver know this. And uh, in fact, you have some built-in mechanisms. Don't, don't you guys story, but I'll, I'll tell you one. So if you've ever gone to a party where somebody gets there late and they're chugging down, White Claw, by the way, is the number one seller right now. <laughs> you're, so, you're so trendy, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Six months ago. <laughs> so, so, um, so you have somebody pounding them down. So what happens is the level of acid aldehyde starts to rise. Your brain sends a signal to your liver. Hey, that's dangerous stuff. Get rid of it. Your liver sends a signal back. Hey, what do you want from me? The guy pounded down like 520s, you know, in 40 minutes. <laughs> so I can't handle it. All right, all right, I'll take care of it. And sends a signal to your stomach. And that signal is like, we need to get rid of stored acid aldehyde. Hmm, I wonder where, from what location we should dump it. So if you've ever been like, puking your guts out hour of drinking or an hour and a half of drinking that's your brain's way to try to keep you alive and this the weird part is because because i would be doing this in college believe me the weird part is if you growing up you know how much you hate it you hate it like you feel like your head's going to explode you can't breathe it's disgusting and you're like i wish this would stop when you're drunk and you throw up like yeah thanks you know like and then you're telling yeah. your friends, like, okay, I feel I feel pretty good. And they're like, yeah, see, but you don't look good because half of that stuff is on your clothes, so you are not riding home with us. Um, so you have you have a, 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 a brain that's saying the poisonous stuff is killing your cells. Your brain's trying to deal with it. The cells that used to respond to the drug, you know, be down-regulated. So all drugs, no every addictive drug, let me put it like that. Every addictive drug has either a front door mechanism or a back door mechanism to release dopamine. Because dopamine is the, the you know the, the happy chemistry. So you know you love life, you know, you love playing the guitar, you love when your girlfriend goes over and you have sex with her, you love the scary movies, you, you like life is good. Well, drugs batter that door down and been good life is freaking great but over time those those nerves they first of all stop they lower response to the drug you have to use more of the drug lower responsiveness use more drugs then they stop other things to make you happy you used to like playing your guitar it doesn't do anything for you anymore you know, your girlfriend here, come or go, who cares? So all it is is the drug and not even to get you happy anymore because you, you have all these down-regulated cells in your brain just to feel normal. Uh, and that is when you know, like I have messed this up relationship with this drug. Pretty serious, serious damage, you know, uh, levels here um, because your brain can't do it anymore and in the meantime the other stuff that you like you know you could tell you pawn that you know mm. reputation that shot you know uh people at work don't want to hang with you anymore so you all the stuff you used to care about 
you know, relationships, friendships, love, guitars, you know, sports down the drain. Just the drug was left. Now even the drug can't do it anymore. And that's when people do what you did, Matt. They start adding on. Well, what about this? You know, what about if I can take a drug and it doesn't sound like you did, which I'm happy about. What about if I can take, I can't drink enough of the front door alcohol. You know, maybe I can try the front door opium, which happens to be when opium, when heroin opens the front door to dopamine, it opens a back door to alcohol. And same thing with alcohol. So I'll try this other drug and maybe get the feeling that I need again. So that's really a, a very common sequence. Not responding anymore. Nothing else makes you happy. Only the drug makes you feel normal. Uh, and then we start adding other stuff on. And that's when that's when people start going to the ER. That's when people start dying. Yeah, no, actually, uh, I was in the ER was 20th, I think, was uh, my one-year anniversary. So that was kind of that, that was kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> like wow, that was a year ago. It's yeah. Long, it's been a wild run. Yeah. And what were you in? Okay. Yeah. So you had a metabolic crisis, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I got ambulance Narcan right in the right outside my house, and uh, yeah, it was it was embarrassing. But yeah, I went to I went there, and I was like, I'm never gonna do that drug again, and. Uh, that that was one of the lies I told to myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did did they narcan you because they thought there was a fentanyl cut in the coke? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty. That's it's pretty common to actually see that. So. Um, so I guess. Um, one thing is with bringing up the Narcan um, in your situation, Matt, is a lot of things that we're seeing right now. I'm, I'm thinking they have it in New York too. And Taylor works for um, a, a company that does this as well. They, they go out and they hand out, you know, uh, free public Narcan. Um, <clears throat> something that we, we see is like people who don't understand or who maybe haven't dealt with drugs and alcohol and, and losing a loved one to, you know, fentanyl or, or opium. Um, they might say, well, why are you giving out free Narcan? Isn't that just going to make people want to use more? Um, what's the, do, do you know anything about that? Or is there anything yeah. that you've researched yeah. about that um, yeah. and why they're doing that and giving it out for free? So um, New York state, you, you, they don't, they give it to you free, but you have to go to the pharmacy. So in the summertime, my, my older daughter runs the public programs at the Adirondack experience which is the museum on blue mountain lake and i'm in charge of a bunch of i, I work with a bunch of young college we have a will to a boathouse on a high altitude lake where we put people in canoes and guide boats but to be off the grid there we all have to have wilderness first aid training cpr uh and aed and here although we have a guy who's an unbelievably highly qualified teacher teaches all the wilderness and get certified. I brought in the Narcan because even when people go on summer vacation, they might not be leaving their Oxycontin pills or their fentanyl pills or some other stuff behind. You know, they're, they're, uh, some of the new ones, Zohydro is a new pill that's five times stronger than, than uh, Vicodin. So, so we, we have those at the boathouse. We have them at the trailhouse. We have them on the campus. 
And, and the idea is that, you know, Narcan and Naloxone, they are wonderful narcotics. So they not only can block the entry into any receptor site of any opioid, even better, they can kick out the opioid that's in there and then lock that site up. So bring people who are, you know, 40 minutes away from dying, you know, because receptor sites in the brainstem for the opioids and alcohol, there's so many of them that it starts to slow down. The signal to breathe anymore. You don't get the signal for your heart to beat anymore. You don't get the signal to anymore. So you're going to be dead. You know, so they used to have, have people come in and what all they could do way back in the past was either an injection of naloxone or try to, you know, try to slow the symptoms down and treat the symptoms. Now you can give this nasal spray, you know, and sometimes you have to do it twice, sometimes you do it four times. And person, that nasal spray, block the opioid, kick it out, come back to life. And what, what freaks some people out is that in the volunteers on rescue sites will say that, yeah, well, we Narcan that guy, you know, on uh, uh, Willow Avenue. And a month later, we had to Narcan him again. Uh, I don't care if you do it every month. Because at that point, it's completely likely that that guy is like, not only am I totally embarrassed and humiliated, but my wife has left me, my lost my job. I'm going to prison unless I straighten myself out. And can kept this guy alive long enough, you know, to get into a treatment program. So I have gone to a couple of, of Narcan. <laughs> it's like a high school reunion from an area who all got Narcan in, in the summer you know, of 2017, they meet like twice a year. And now they're going to finish their college degree. Now they have a two-year-old who's happy. Now they're back living at home, helping their mom, you know, because their dad died. Because now they've had a chance that we kept them alive, you know. Now they have a chance to, to, to lead a real life and contribute tremendously you know, to, to uh, the life of everybody. So why someone would want us, why don't, why do we do Joseph life? I don't know. Yeah. Why do we treat people in diabetic coma? I don't know. You know? <laughs> oh, they're just going to die from a diabetic coma later on. That they'll get another car accident and die. You know, we, right. we don't see that in any other disease, but we have these built in, against people with alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder because we a lack of character as opposed to a change in the landscape of the brain. Change in the landscape of somebody's brain. And we can help them recover the landscape they had before if we keep them alive and give them a chance and, and get them, you know, in, into this, you know, with somebody in treatment it's an empowering relationship it's not about confrontation it's about helping you find ways to help yourself so why would we not want to do that absolutely well i think we all agree with that for sure 
Um, it's just something that you hear, and I'm sure that people on here listening might ask the same question to themselves, you know. And uh, it's just something we like to bring to light um, and different perspectives on it. Yeah, yeah. It, you talked to somebody who who was saved twice or even three times by Narcan, who eventually got into a treatment program and, and could not be more grateful that somebody didn't let them die on the side of the road. No. And their family could not be more grateful and their new wife and their one-year-old child, all of that, because, you know, we care enough, you know, to use a, a, a medical intervention that keeps them. Sure. Anything to add to that, Matt and Taylor? <coughs> no, um, I mean, you uh, can go, uh, Matt. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that uh, no, I think that that's, important to hear because look if i didn't get if i didn't get narcan i probably i don't know if i'd be here right now if i didn't get help in recovery i definitely wouldn't be here right now like i have no reserves on if i didn't get help exactly when i did i do not think i would have saw my 28th birthday i was on my way out and now look i'm am i perfect now no there's still a lot of things that you know i need to work on and things that i need to become better at but at the same time the disaster of a human that i was six months ago is not the same person that, you know, is talking on this podcast now. And there is a way back for people if, if you want it bad enough. And when you do go into a recovery program, it's not like my, we'll call him my sobriety sensei. Um, he's never, it's never been like, you know, a uh, relationship where it's been like, you have to do all this. It's more helping me, helping me in making decisions that are better than myself. He's there to assist me. And I bounce stuff off of him and uh, he's been able to like empower me to like, now it's like my first thought typically is a bad one, but I can identify like, don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) 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 You know, we're growing. So, you know, if if for Narcan to give somebody else that chance, you know, I don't see a problem with it. If you do see a problem with it, then that's probably a you problem. Well, go ahead, Taylor too. No, I, I think you articulated it perfect, and you're right. As long as someone is breathing, there's always hope. And just a quick shout-out for any of our listeners, because I know a few of our listeners have followed up with me. On Tuesday this week, we will be handing out Narcan at the River Valley um, Medical Center in the Hepburn Plaza in Williamsport. If anybody wants to stop by, I will be there from one to four thirty, handing out Narcan. That's the that's, plug. Oh, and, that is uh, great, Mister Nerney. Uh, one thing that I thought of there immediately was um, from the from the portion back of two thousand fourteen. The stuff that Matt's saying, I thought of immediately was uh, you know the questionnaire. You know, when when adolescents are asked, you know, is it a good idea to set your hair on fire? Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know. Uh, it takes them a while to, to answer, but eventually they say, you know, obviously no. Whereas adults, we say no right away. Right. But when you're using drugs and alcohol and you're in active use and active addiction, uh, that question, you know, will it get me dr- it, Would it get me drugs if I caught my hair on fire? Yeah. Because I yeah. probably would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it's such a change in your, your perception of yourself. You know, so so you can say, you know, yeah, I wanted to have sex with that person. I didn't do it just because they would get me drugs. No, you didn't. You know, you wanted. Yeah. 
I, they treated me wrong in that store. That's why I stole stuff. You know, so there's always rationalization and always denial. And then at some point, you start to say, so all of this stuff I'm talking is, is my brain and my behavior, and to some extent, the person I was has changed. And that change has been driven by this chemical you know, restructuring my brain, but, you know, in six months. So Matt, in six months, we already see a ton of reconnections and synaptic areas in your brain that, that have been dormant, you know, for years now. We see uh, uh, cerebrospinal fluid, well, a, a form of that, refilling chambers in your brain where it was like a drought that was going on. We see cell structures, motivation, memory, uh, emotional learning. We see those regenerating. All of this stuff, you know, uh, it's going to give you a path back to your full self. It's happening, you know, in two weeks. Now, you know, it might all, it might take four years for all of it to get back. But boy, so much of it comes back to, uh, starting almost the day you stop. So that you get to be, and you get to learn that, okay, as you were talking about already, Matt, my old self likes 4th of July. <laughs> loves it. So, yeah, so I'm going to do something about that. You know. So so you, what you're saying is, though, from earlier, there's really no more hope for Taylor because he's five years. So anything that he has gone going wrong with his brain is done, right? Yeah. Like he can't, he can't really recover anymore. It's, it's Sorry, pretty, Taylor. It's, it's a, a blank slate for Tra Taylor. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Taylor, the fact that Taylor reached five years, and of course, uh, you have to be careful when you say this because it's not like, well, I can do anything now. But your relapse risk is dropped down, you know, way, way down to like 15%, you know. Um, because early on, you know, it's so... It, it, there's, so what do we know? We know even early on that there are stored emotional memories of the drug high that stay in your brain. They're stored by this protein called PKM Zeta. And when you get high, this, this protein comes around and says like, oh man, let's store that in the emotional part of me because that felt so freaking good. Um, that takes at least two years for those stored emotional memories. So, so Matt, like 4th of July, if you went out like to hang with your friends and watch fireworks, they all had beer, your PKMZ would be flooding your brain with all of these emotional highs. Oh my God, Matt, just take a hit. It's just one. You don't have to pick up, just take one. That's not, I mean, in a way that's not on you. That's on what brain what's on you is to learn about it and say yeah so i'm not going out there you know um, oh yeah i locked myself in my house i was like no nope. <laughs> yeah. but taylor you you all a lot of that stuff is already long out of your brain and you know more of your emotional memories now are you know your family members yourself you know what you're doing uh all that who's playing golf was that you matt no, it was me. It was you, Taylor. okay. Yeah. yeah Taylor. You know what Mark Twain said about golf, don't you? No. A good walk ruined. 
<laughs> well, what's funny so about what, what's funny about that too, missionary is was uh, Taylor. You were just talking about how you had a. Do you have a dream that you were using? Yeah, I mean, I will have. I remember early on. I would say the first year or so, I would have a drug or drunk dream once a month. Um, now I'm at the point where I get one about every year. Um, yeah. And yeah. they obviously, like, early on, I used to panic. I would wake up sweaty. Um, I, I legitimately had myself convinced that I'd use or drink. Um, and especially being on drug court when you think you're getting high. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, uh, yeah. tend to panic even more. Now it's more or less. I remember the dreams aren't as vivid. I do remember them. Um, But I wake up and I'm in a far less panic or, you know, feeling of all these emotions that I I once was. Yeah, that and that is, you know, they'll diminish more and more, but you'll still have them occasionally because whatever we've done in our life stores in different places. And like we talked about, emotion has a much greater fidelity than Oh, what did I do on Tuesday? Or, or you know, declarative. Oh, I, I have to remember my appointment. So emotional memories, and it shows up in, in dreams, and you are not responsible for your dreams. I do occasionally have dreams that Megan the Stallion is coming over to pick me up, you know, <laughs> take me out for, you know, to a club to hang out with her for a while. But, uh, my, you know, my wife doesn't resent that, you know, because, A, it's not going to happen. And B, you know, you are you are not, in fact, responsible. Dreams are these remarkable clearing houses. Dreams are like like the the super clean janitor crew is going through your high school picking up all the debris. They basically dreams take broken proteins from your brain and flush them out. And a lot of them will be memories that are long stored and and actually happen and get flushed out you'll have fewer and fewer of them so uh so yeah that's don't panic about them but see it for what it is you know it's a a process in the brain yeah Yeah. i think the dream that josh was alluding to it was prompted because i was on probably a good 10 month year stretch of no dreams well my wife was prescribed uh percocet for kidney stones um and obviously, I saw her. She got the prescription. I saw them. I did not want to use at all. I had no urges. I mean, I used to love Percocet probably more than anybody. Um, didn't even have an inkling um, to use them. But <laughs> heavens forbid, guess what I was dreaming about two days later? Absolutely. So I, yeah. I think it was probably the visual thing, seeing it. And my brain, you know, maybe connecting the dots back. Absolutely. Together. Yeah. 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 I um, thought that was super interesting. It's um, I don't want to keep you. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, we've already had you a long time already and you, you've given us so much. We appreciate it. We really do. Um, it helps us because you're a lot smarter than us with this stuff. No, so when we no, when I'm we go to lot, explain stuff, <laughs> I'm just a lot older than you, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing, one thing I do want to leave our listeners with, maybe, and if you're not comfortable answering it, that's okay too. Um, and then you can ask us questions too. Um, but 
if, if someone, if a listener out there is maybe struggling with a loved one going through addiction right now, maybe they're in active addiction or, or maybe, you know, they're, they're even newer to it than Matt is, you know, what, what can they do to maybe, maybe, um, help get, get that person. They can't take full responsibility of it as we know. Right. Um, but what are the, what are the things that they can do to uh, help? So that, that question and, and you guys all know there's like, this complicated parts of that, you know, so, so the mm-hmm. first thing we could talk about is don't enable them anymore. You know, don't call work and say, Oh, he's got a migraine today, or she's got a migraine today. Don't enable them anymore. Um, don't freeze them out either. You know, like, you know, you're a lost cause. You know, I'll just, uh, we'll be married until you kill yourself with a drug overdose, but I'm, I'm already detaching. Hopefully you have to do that to some degree. So you're not dragged into it. So it's a tough, tough balance. You can't enable uh, and you can't detach completely, but you have to talk with them about, you know, so we, we often talk about what if questions with loved ones or scalable questions, like on a scale of one to 10, you know, um, how, how much emotional presence do you have for me and the kids? No. And they'll say, you say, no, honey, it's a four. You know, when you're home, you're drunk. When you're not, when you're, when you're not drunk, you go driving to get the booze, you know. So it's really helpful. This is how you see yourself, but this is how we see yourself. So it's not a confrontation. It's not an intervention. It's a scalable question. You can ask what if questions or you know, what, what if we could go back to five years ago? Do you remember what it was like for us? We had so much fun. We were saving our money. So you can use what if questions. Was there a time, you know, when you were more in control of your life, when you felt healthier, when you felt that our relationship was the thing that, you know, was building us together? Look, we know from young couples, when, when they get addicted, young couples will say, whichever one's addicted, you know, she swears that she loves me, but I know she loves, let's take Percocet. I know she loves the pills more. And, and if both of the couples are addicted, say to the opioids, and one of them says, I'm going to go out and score for both of us. When that one comes home, the first thing the person waiting at home does is look at their eyes to see if their, pimp, their, their pupils are pinned. Because if they're pinned, they'll say, you had a hit, didn't you? No, no, I would never do it without you it without their partner because it, it's impossible for that brain to love the person they used to love all they can love those pathways got eroded and replaced by how much i love this drug so you talk when me and and the three-year-old were the most important things to you so without big fights without confrontation without you know i'll, I'll help you you know whatever kind of treatment you pick i'll do it. And generally speaking, women stay with partners far more faithfully through the treatment process than men stay with their female partners. Um, and also, it does not have to be, you know, there's not one way to recovery. You know, there's a ton of different support systems, treatment programs, whether somebody picks cognitive behavioral or medication assisted treatment. You know, what do we know about 
as a treatment. When people talk about, you know, Suboxone and Bufinex and, and Methadone, we know that if you get somebody in that program at the beginning, there's in, in the first month people, there is a reduction by 50% in, in mortality from all means. So when people, just like people are against Narcan, people are against, you know, MAT, they're like, oh, you're just giving them another drug. No, we're reducing their chance of dying by 50%. (laughs) Why wouldn't you want to do that? So, So if someone can learn what are all the options, once he gets into treatment, the treatment program is going to help find out, well, you know, you suffer from depression your whole life. You're drinking, you know, weed to try to manage your depression. It's not working. How else can we treat the depression? Because now we know you can treat comorbidity the same. You don't wait for people to be clean for two years in the recovery program before you address their anxiety disorder or before you address their depression. We can do all of it and have way better outcomes. So don't give up. You know, uh, if the first time through doesn't work, that's okay. You know, 60% of the people are likely to relapse. It doesn't mean you have to. That it happens, then you you reinstitute the program, you intensify it. They do so much better the second time through. So that so that recovery is a process that takes practice. So, and if, I don't know, Josh, if I said this at in, in Hershey, but I would say, so how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, and practice, and that's what recovery is. So if someone, you know encourage them, support them, promote them, you know, do the scalable questions, the uh, remember when questions, uh, and help them try to find a treatment program that's right for them. There is no one program that is right for everybody. And I don't know if it was Taylor, you or Matt that talked about your, your recovery sensei, somebody who's saying, talk this over with me, you know, as opposed to this is the way you have to do it, buddy. Is right. far, far more likely to get, you know, somebody to be successful than the ones who are like, you know, you're a liar, you're in denial, you know. So, so we know now that far more uh, an affirmative relationship that's based on, you know, um, someone's seeing someone as an essentially valuable human being and helping them find ways to help themselves is, is the, you know the going that's all very very valuable information in my opinion and uh it goes back to our why of you know kind of why we started doing this is if we can help one person that's our goal um and we want to bring you know addiction and drug and alcohol to the forefront of you know the it's such a taboo topic um i think it's getting better as we progress um it's a lot better than when i was a teenager that's for sure yeah um you know but it's just that's the reason we do this and i think that information and all the information you gave us in this episode is awesome and you know when we get further down the road and get a little bit better at this i definitely want to try and get you back on of course i would Um, love to do that joshua (laughs) and um taylor matt did you guys have anything yeah i i i really appreciate you mr nerney coming on here um you actually put some perspectives um, of like the whys and hows 
especially, you know, looking back on things and maybe why I decided to do certain things and why simply the outcomes were the way they were, um, especially early on in my, you know, drinking and drugging career. And it was tons of, it's tons of information to digest, but um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm a little bit more knowledgeable um, after this and, you know, hopefully, you know, that can help me understand. I, I don't, the biggest population that I work with, um, in my profession is not really a lot of juveniles, but I have gotten, um, some 15 and 16, 17 year olds that I've worked with. So, you know, I think moving forward, this might, you know, be able to help, um, you know, just the people I see in an everyday life and in a professional setting as well. That's great. And, and, uh, you know, the more we learn together, you know, the, the, others yeah absolutely and mr nerdy just again thank you for coming on and uh i learned a lot especially especially because like me and taylor can talk from our personal experiences and you know josh floats his master's degree as much as he possibly can but, uh, <laughs> but as far as like how the human brain works and everything we, i didn't really know much i mean i kind of understood that with the amount that i was drinking like uh, my brain stopped working because i stopped being able to just do normal functions and now yeah. like now being you know six months clean it's like my body i mean mentally i'm still there's still a lot of work to do but physically i've i haven't felt this good since I was probably 13 years old. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence, but, um, you know, you, you helped connect a lot of dots for me and, uh, yeah, definitely learned a lot. And I actually, I think this is one of our better ones. Absolutely. I hope so. And I would love to down the road when you're thinking of expanding the topics or different aspects of that, me another contact Josh, and I'd love to work with you guys again. It'll probably have to, over the sleep deficiency from the new baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there, did you have so, any questions for us or anything? Or no, I'm I'm just we'll, we'll excited. Take advice you, too. We'll take no, advice. I'm just excited that you guys are doing something with the goal of sharing life experiences and sharing knowledge to help other people. I think it's it's just the best. And um, then if, if anybody listening um, would want you to come and speak at an event or anything like that, how could they, is it your email the best way to reach out? Sure. Yes. Okay. And it, it's Michael F. Nerney. And the F is not for famous. Um, <laughs> so Michael F. Nerney at gmail.com. And that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-F-N-E-R-N-E-R ny at gmail.com that is it so. and he's he's responsive he got back to us real real quick I, so. you know it's i'm i'm it just makes me you know i'm just happy to have an opportunity to to, to share stuff that i learned from people on the brain research because boy, it can make a difference for you. Absolutely, absolutely, and we 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 do appreciate it. I know we're going to sound like a broken record, but thank you so much for coming on. Um, and if any of the listeners out there, if you if it sounds a little weird this time, we did use Anchor um, rather than ZenCaster. Um, so I apologize for that. I can't edit out all the audio and everything like that. But um, yeah, that might be why it sounds different. But we appreciate everyone listening. And once again, thank you, Mr. Nerney, and thank you, Taylor and Matt, you guys. Yeah, Absolutely. Good for you as well. All, All right. right. Hey, Take have care a great now. night.
Thank you. You bet. Bye. Bye. All right. So back there, I did make a rookie mistake. I forgot to send the podcast off, but you thought we thought we would completely forget. But Matt, tell lovely people. We were not. We will not forget. Josh is a G that stands for gangster. Mister Nerney was an OG, the original gangster. People, we were out here living. What a day! We learned about the brain, and we learned about that. Why I'm smarter now. Why my body feels good. Listen, people. If you are struggling, if you're having a bad time, if you can't imagine your life with drugs and alcohol, don't ever, ever, ever forget. There's a new life out there. You don't have to go down that road anymore because sobriety fucks. Love you guys. Amen. Love you. See ya.